0: Welcome to episode number 28 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, we're creating a global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and in today's episode, we're having an interview with Tim Hennix, Director of Engineering Services with Dustcon Solutions. In this episode, we're talking about the new revisions to NFPA69 and what has changed since the the new revisions have been released, or what has changed from the new revisions to the older revisions. We talk about a couple different topics, including safety instrumented systems, the new requirements in NFPA 69. We talk about limiting oxygen concentration. We talk about minimum explosive concentration as well, and how these have been changed, or some aspects of these have been changed, in the new release of this standard. NFPA 69 is a standard on explosion prevention systems, um, and this includes everything that pretty much is involved in prevention and protection from explosions, except for venting. Um, that is covered in NFPA 68 in its own set of standards. Listen through to the end of the episode because we actually get into a, an interesting discussion on process safety in general and how we kind of we have differences in how we approach process safety, uh, layers of protection, instrumented safety systems, and that sort of thing in the combustible dust world, and how that's a little bit different than what Tim has seen in the chemical processing industries, and. Maybe there's some room for improvement there, and we kind of get into some interesting topics there about lost containment and other areas. As always, I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and I hope you really enjoy today's episode with Tim. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Today's episode, we're having an interview with Tim Hinnicks, Director of Engineering Services with DustCon Solutions out of West Palm Beach, Florida. Tim, thank you for coming on to the podcast today.
1: Hey, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So in today's episode, we're talking about recent changes to NFPA 69, the standard on explosion prevention systems. And we're talking about the the new revisions that have recently been released and what that means for industry and what that means for explosion protection and prevention systems. Uh, I came across an article that, that Tim sent me actually that he wrote in LinkedIn that was a new revision of NFPA 69's release, what changed. He covered the three kind of major changes that he saw. I thought that'd be a great uh, topic to, to have on the podcast, and just to go through those changes. And it's actually a good jumping-off point for some concepts that we haven't actually talked about in the podcast so far. So I think it'll be be good on that front as well. Tim, maybe before we jump into that, can you briefly explain your your current role with Duscon Solutions and what uh, what you do there?
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. So at Duscon Solutions, we're a process safety consulting and engineering firm. Focus specifically on the hazards of combustible dust. In my role, I uh, kind of manage the day to day operations for us. Uh, I work with clients to, to make sure schedules are in order, that our consultants uh, are on site at the right times and the right places for those DHAs to be completed, answering questions from prospects and clients about what a DHA is, what dust testing they might need, and uh, if there's any opportunities where uh, i need to go out to the field to do those hazard assessments myself i'll do that as well
0: excellent so maybe we'll just jump right into the topic because as i mentioned there's a couple things like safety instrumented systems um limiting oxygen concentrations things that we've talked about a bit on the podcast before that this will allow us kind of jump into but what does as a starting point what does nfpa 69 cover and when were the most recent changes made
1: So our listeners might be aware of some of the different NFPA documents that are related to combustible dust and the handling of uh, combustible dust. Uh, NFPA 69 is the standard on explosion prevention systems. It's essentially what we use to determine how to prevent and mitigate the effects of a dust explosion, although this also covers um, explosions from flammable vapors or flammable gases. It's important to note that it's different than the NFPA 68 document, which covers explosion protection by deflagration venting. The explosion venting document is its own separate document. It doesn't necessarily get covered here in 69. But some examples of systems or methods for uh, explosion prevention covered in NFPA 69 would be inerting systems, uh, reduction of combustibles concentration. Spark detection and extinguishment, similar systems to that. Explosion suppression, explosion isolation, detonation arrestors, and pressure pressure containment.
0: Yeah, so I'm just looking through. It's not the newest version, but uh, the older version I have. And yeah, there's deflagration prevention from oxen, oxidant concentration reduction. There's combustible concentration reduction. There's uh, control of ignition sources, and then there's deflagration control. So this would be an explosion that started to happen or is in process, control by suppression, control by active isolation, control by passive isolation, and pressure containment. So control by pressure containment, designing your, your vessel to withstand the explosion. Uh, so that's the good kind of coverage. And it is important to note, as, as Tim said, that NFPA 68 is the, the engineering guidance that covers explosion venting fully and wholly as well. You mentioned this actually. We didn't talk about it before the show, but you mentioned this in our email correspondence that this was, I think, you called it maybe a, a how-to standard versus a prevent or versus kind of categorizing the risk. Does that does that ring true, or what's the right way to say that?
1: Yeah, you've got it, Chris. So when we talk about sixty-nine, we we say that it's a how-to standard because it's prescribing the methods by which we mitigate or which we prevent uh, the hazards associated with combustible dust. And that's different than, say, NFPA 652, which is more of a a prescriptive standard. It's defining what the hazard is, defining where it exists, and it's pointing to these how-to documents for the methods of control.
0: Okay, that's a a good breakdown to mention, I think, just as people try to work their way through these different documents and understand them, the hierarchy... to know what that is 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 good to know. You know, you have these kind of classification of different um, you know hazards and risks, and these point to then these these instructive or uh, maybe even prescriptive might be the word documents to to actually mitigate or prevent the risks.
1: You mentioned that it can be a little bit uh, difficult to navigate the NFPA documents, and then you throw into that the, the fact that you know not only do you got different places that. The, the prescriptive documents are pointing within NFPA, but NFPA is also pointing outside of the NFPA documents for some of these requirements. You know, you might find that in these, in specifically to NFPA 69. You know, a good example would be explosion isolation, where you know there's no test protocol that NFPA puts forth. It's actually pointing outwards towards some of these other third-party testing and approvals that you can get. Uh, you know, for a good example, if you're Purchasing an explosion flap valve uh, for explosion isolation of, say, a dust collector, now, NFPA doesn't have a test protocol for that. So you're going to have to go find the appropriate ATEX standard and use that as the testing protocol to ensure that your valve is safe.
0: That's a good. That's a good um, clarification and probably even a, a topic for a future podcast. I think we went down the, If we go down the road right now, we may. We may have to change the title of this episode, <laughs> um, but that's, that's probably good to know. And even though there are those kind of things in there. So I think, yeah, I think we'll move on with the, the changes and, and maybe we can come back to some of that at the end because I think that's a, another good topic and we'll, we'll kind of mention what, what we think some of the open challenges may be in the system as well. In your, your article, you mentioned that there's really three major changes from the, the newest version of NFPA 69 compared to the older versions. Uh, one is the introduction of a safety instrumented systems to explosion protection, so SIS for safety instrumented systems, changing the limited oxygen concentration reg- requirements or the guidelines there, and then changing combustible concentration design criteria. Those are kind of the three that I saw highlighted in your article. So I think maybe we'll step through those. Um, starting with the first one, what is a, a safety instrumented system and what do the the new changes require for that?
1: So a, a safety instrumented system, or a SIS, as it's commonly refer, referred to, is not a new concept. It is brand new to NFPA 69, but you know, it's been around for quite some time, especially in the, the chemical and the petroleum industries. My first exposure to SIS uh, was working as a plant engineer in the chemical industry, where we used SIS as kind of an integral part of our independent protection layers at the plant. For those who have worked in the chemical industry in the past, safety, process safety is a uh, you know kind of major component of uh, the design and the operation of those sites and not only for the safety of employees but for for continuity of the business. So, when we define what a SIS is, it's a safety system used to prevent incidents that might happen that might cause loss or injury. And it does so by kind of monitoring the process and automatically taking action to intervene and ensure that we're bringing the system back to a safe condition. Typically, it's going to include logic solvers, controllers, and final control elements. And it's important to note that the SIS is an independent layer of protection against that hazard uh, above and beyond Either the administrative controls or the basic process control system that you have in place, you know when you talk to somebody who, who's trying to to capture what a sis is for the first time, uh, it might be useful to describe a real uh, real simple example of a high level control on a tank from like a you know a rail car unload uh, so if you think about the way that the rail car is being unloaded you 've got a pump it 's filling the the tank with liquid. And, you know, one scenario which might cause loss is uh, kind of a loss of containment because that tank is overfilled. You know, maybe the, the level sensor fails or, or somebody forgets to turn off the pump and you overfill the tank. And that's an unacceptable outcome for your, for your organization. Well, what your simple SIS will do is you'll in- install an independent high, high-level probe. You'll install a controller and you'll install maybe a shutoff ball valve on the inlet line. And those three elements work together so that if you ever do meet that criteria of, you know we've hit our high level, it'll shut off the inlet, and you come to a safe state in which you're no longer going to be filling that vessel in that way. So so that gives a basic overview of what the SIS is, but they get categorized based on how reliable each of the components of the SIS is. And we we refer to each one of these individual components as an SIF, a safety instrumented function. And they get rated on SIL levels, safety integrity levels, between one and four. One being the lowest level of reliability, four being the highest level of reliability. What NFPA 69 has done is it is said that all explosion prevention systems uh, installed after November 5th, 2021, need to be installed as a SIS, and that SIS needs to meet at least SIL2 requirements.
0: Maybe, I I really like the example of the overflow, and you actually used a bunch of keywords that we may circle around to like process safety and loss of containment, and things that, as you mentioned in chemical processing industries, are, are very kind of baked right in and then maybe in, in dust handling industries we we seem not to recognize loss containment's a big one i mean we we don't even use that terminology really for for combustible dust some some of the really um smart and expert people do but the general you know general industries may not use that term um so we may come back to that if we have time at the end because i think there's a lot of process safety things we can learn from those chemical industries that were maybe skipping over or or doing a different way in combustible dust safety. But for this SIS, so safety instrument systems, we have individual units. These are the safety instrumented functions, and they have to be ranked up to a certain level. So their safety integrity level, the SIL. Can you give an example of how that looks for, say, a dust dust line? Say you have a hopper, you're pouring in grains, going through a mill, it's going through a cyclone, um, down to a product line, a bagging station. What does that look like for, uh, what does an SIS look like for in, in kind of combustible dust world?
1: So kind of the best uh, example uh, of an SIS, and it's not necessarily being called, it, uh, called in this way within the combustible dust community at this time, but it's acting in that way, is an explosion suppression system. So in the, in the example you just gave, uh, you might have an explosion suppression system on your cyclone on your uh, on your filter that, that's above your packaging line. And the goal of that uh, explosion suppression system is to prevent the propagation of flame front within the vessel if you ever get ignition. So if you don't have that suppression system in place, you're going to let that combustion run its course, pressure builds, the vessel will likely rupture from the amount of pressure built, and you get a flame ball that enters your plant. That's an unacceptable outcome. You can't do that. So what you do is you put this explosion suppression system in, and the way that it functions is it's looking for pressure built in that vessel. So that would be the the first of your SIFs, or your safety integrated functions. Now, that's going to be your sensor and it's taking in the information from the vessel, the pressure that's being built during those early stages of the deflagration, and it relays that message to the controller before finally sending out the signal to deploy your suppression canister, maybe. Now, when we're looking at that from a SIS perspective, if we've got maybe a single detector on the vessel, and we've got a, a standard controller and a single bottle. Uh, we're probably looking at what would be a SIL one level. And the SIL one again, circling back to that, it all, its all about the reliability. How many times will it fail when needed over the course of, you know, you know, we're talking on the order of. 10 to the 4th, 10 to the 5th, 10 to the 6th instances in which it might be needed, how many of those times is it not going to work as designed? So one of the ways to improve that reliability or improve that sill level is the use of higher quality or higher level detection or controls and the use of redundancy. So maybe we've got two different uh, detectors that are looking for that pressure rise and if either one of them see it it sets off the system that way if maybe there's an electrical failure or one of them goes out of calibration the other one's still there as a backup to see to sense and to set off the system
0: okay that's a great example i think yeah redundant sensors redundant systems it kind of comes back to layer protection approach that you were mentioning before, right? If you have one failure, it's not going to cause the catastrophic failure. You have another stop guard in place. Exactly. Okay. So I think that's sounds like a good topic for another podcast episode running through all the different type of equipment, and how we could get to SIL level two from SIL level one. Because I think if if I'm a listener to this right now in my in my car driving to work or whatever, I'm probably going, well that was really good to know. What about all the other equipment that I'm that I'm looking at? So I can picture that coming in as a question. To stay on top for, for this episode, uh, maybe we'll move on to the second major change. So, that was the f- so just for for redundancy, I guess we'll say, that was the first of the, the changes that we've seen in NFPA that they've now put in more about this um, CIS process requiring that SIL level 2 is, is required and how that falls through. The second one you mentioned was limiting oxygen concentration. Um, so what are the changes that we see there?
1: So within the NFPA 69 document the, the changes to limiting to the way in which we are utilizing the limiting oxygen concentration data found in the annex material of NFPA 69 is going to change. Now it's not going to impact dust users so much because uh, the change is specific to uh, the flammability tube data found in annex C of the document. The exact language, is basically that instead of making an adjustment for that flammability tube data that says subtracting 2% by volume, it's now giving a a longer, kind of more accurate formula for for how to make that determination. The new text reads, subtracting 1.5% by volume for LOC values of 10% or greater or multiplying by a factor of 0.85 for LOC values less than 10%. So to kind of bring it back to what's going to be important for uh, our combustible dust users listening to this podcast, the NFPA 69 document describes ways in which you can utilize the limiting oxygen concentration of a material, of a sample, to design a system in which there's not enough oxygen present to support the deflagration. And it's used as a prevention system in a lot of cases. Uh, you can do it by adding an inert gas such as nitrogen or CO2 inerting, or I've also seen it done on the on dryer systems where you've got the back end of a direct fire burner, and you've already consumed that oxygen, and you've got uh, and you've got that fuel gas, you've got the spent or the the combusted fuel gas coming into the system with a low enough level of oxygen that it can no longer uh, support a deflagration in that atmosphere. But the, the big thing to know for combustible dust users with the NFPA 69 document is that it does allow you to use some of that LOC data, limiting oxygen concentration data, found in the back of the document to go forward and design or utilize that when trying to to prevent your deflagration by not allowing oxygen into the system
0: okay, and it sounds like the adjusting equations have been made more precise. I think I didn't look at the equation specifically the the bimodal two part new equation, but is it is it a little less um, conservative than the old one or is it kind of similar just in different regions it's different or what's that look like
1: it's going to be a it, yeah it's going to be a little bit less conservative um, you know a good example of where, you know, how you can see this is for values above 10% rather than subtracting that 2% and, and needing to use that much more purge gas in order to get to your your acceptable oxygen concentration, you know, rather than going 12 to 10, it now allows you go uh, from 12 to 11 point, or excuse me, 12 to 10.5%. Uh, for lower values than that, maybe we're looking at a uh, LOC of about five percent, rather than subtracting that two, which would be almost forty percent of the oxygen uh, in that five percent range. You know, going from five to three. You know, instead we're going to five from five to just over four percent. So it it really helps to um, bring bring the equations into a way that are a little bit less onerous on the user because the more of that oxygen that you need to remove from the system, it's more costly and it requires more design.
0: No, that makes sense. And yeah, if it's already meeting the kind of, if it's already safe, then you're just kind of adding extra difficulty to maintain that. In some cases, you may actually be adding these these systems where you're um, running through purge gas and that they, they have safety concerns in their own right. If you're reducing the oxygen concentration atmosphere, obviously, you don't want to have that go below breathable levels. They're usually closed systems, but you could have an upset condition. So just be, you know, it's good to make it safe. And then if we try to stretch too much farther than that, it's going to be potentially onerous, potentially not cost effective. Potentially, could actually create some other hazards that are could be at play as well. Yeah. So, okay. So we covered the first two changes, safety instrument systems, limited oxygen concentrations, specifically the... The equations in the back in Appendix C and how those are applied, really how they're applied to combustible gases. But then I think elsewhere in, in FPA69, there's, there's also um, some discussion of how that can be applied to combustible dust. The third change was on the minimum explosible concentration. What's the changes there?
1: So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit just before about how if you don't have enough oxidant within a system, you can't get combustion. Well, it's the same thing with your fuel. So your combustible dust needs to be present in sufficient quantities to support the combustion as well. So, you know, for combustible dust, rather than the LFL or low, lower flammability limit that we would typically refer to for gases and vapors, we utilize something else called the minimum explosible concentration, MEC. So... Both of these values are basically giving us the lowest amount of our fuel that we can have and still support deflagration or combustion, really. Focusing on combustible dust applications, we're using that MEC value as a basis of safety in certain situations in which we've got maybe a dilute airstream coming into a dust collector where we don't have enough combustible dust present to support that kind of combustion that might lead to a deflagration hazard. However, one of the things that has been identified as of recent is the idea that within a a filter, within maybe a pulse jet type dust collector, you've got these fine particles that are constantly recirculating off the bags, right? Or maybe you have certain areas within your plant where you've got higher concentration of combustibles than in others, so what the new change to the NFPA 69 document has done is essentially ensured that not only are we taking a look at the required amount of dust that's needed in the dust collector and the variations that might that you might find with pressure or temperature within the process or what type of operating controls you have in place and how it's maintained but what we're looking for is whether or not there's going to be concentration variation with time and location, and this is important in relation to that example I kind of brought up, because when you first start up a, a new dust collector, it's got a real dilute stream in it. You very well may not have uh, a deflagration in that hazard for a deflagration hazard within that vessel for some amount of time, but as we as we go through the lifespan of those filters, and it may be months, it might be years before those filters get changed out, you end up in a set in a steady state situation in which the same material is constantly being kind of, you know, the same material is being caked onto those filters, pulsed off, and then comes right back to the filters. I know that some of the, the dust collector manufacturers have uh, some really good videos of exactly how this happens. Not all that dust will come off the filter real nice and into the hopper like. Like you might think, because of the way the air is flowing through the filter media and out the clean air plenum, you've got you know you've got a constant dust cloud there. So even if you're not bringing in dust with a a high concentration uh, over time, you're going to end up with a combustible dust cloud surrounding those filter elements. So the changes to NFPA 69 in this section is really focused on making sure. That we're considering all possible scenarios for concentration variation, and we're not just necessarily taking a time weighted average.
0: No, that's a good point. And I think th- maybe let me know if this also applies. So we talked a little bit about time averaging, but spatially as well. If we you have dust accumulating over a certain piece of equipment or around a certain piece of equipment, um, you could say, you know, my facility has a volume of. X and divide the, const- the mass of dust around the piece of equipment and say there's no explosion hazard, but there may be a flash fire hazard around that piece of equipment. Is that kind of covered under this MEC changes as well, or is that is that something different?
1: Yeah, you got it. Uh, in fact, the exact language that the, the document puts forth is that you're looking to ensure that you've got less than 25% of your minimum explosive concentration for all foreseeable Concentrations in the operating conditions and material loadings. So circling back to what you had mentioned, Chris, about you know you might have a large building enclosure, and, and you could say, well, we don't have a def- we don't have a deflagration hazard here because out of this much volume that we have, we only are storing x amount of pounds uh, of the material, and when you when you flush it out, there's no way that we could possibly have a cloud of that density. Uh, That fills the room. But what you've mentioned is that you might end up with a cloud that takes up a certain portion of that room or a certain portion of your enclosure or vessel that that would be combustible. And even if it doesn't create enough pressure to qualify as an explosion, meaning that it ruptures through its enclosure, uh, you might still have a flash fire. And that's a real hazard to your employees and to your process. And it's something that needs to be addressed, and that's why the changes are being made here. Well,
0: oh, that's a that's a really good um, clarification and, and point to go through. And I think that sounds like it's the changes are uh, maybe in the the right direction for you know overall safety. So I think before they had you know changes in operating temperature and operating pressure that will affect your your MEC. But yeah, if your your concentration is changing in time, especially during startup and shutdown, I mean that's when we see a lot of hot Things may be entering the system or um, people aren't quite prepared. And, and that's where you see people getting injured. So things like dryers, we've seen where, you know, the, the dust may heat, fall out on a heating element, off gas and cause a hybrid mixture in the dryer. Then when they turn it back on, that's when the explosion might happen. So yeah, there's lots of good cases there. I think that's a that's a good one to, to go through. I have a list here of several questions I'd like to go through more with you. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get the time. I did want to ask your general thoughts on some combustible dust safety overall, but I do want to circle back to the process safety side. Just because you express that you have a background in, in the chemical industries, um, you're talking like things about process safety, layer protection analysis, LOPA, which is sort of this, this SIS or SIL concept that are sort of making their way into the NFPA documents now, um, loss of containment, which is a really big thing in the chemical processing industries. Everyone can see that. If you have a, a vat of acetone or, you know, some flammable liquid, if that's if that's loss of containment and spilled out, then you have a hazard. We don't really think that way, and at least a lot of people don't think that way about combustible dust. Do you have any general thoughts on? I don't even know what the question is. It's not necessarily where we're at in combustible dust versus chemical processing, but I mean, we call it we call it our hazard analysis DHAs, dust hazard analysis. We don't call them PHAs, process hazard analysis. It seems to be a little bit of a divide, maybe a lag. Um, I can't really tell, but what are your thoughts about all this coming from a chemical safety background or chemical industry background
1: yeah it, it's interesting that you you mentioned some of those things, Chris, because you know starting in a, a in a chemical plant, uh, the, the concept of process safety is really hammered home from the first day you're on site, and the idea of loss of containment meaning that you've got some material that ends up somewhere it shouldn't be, whether it's it's leaking from a valve or it, it's being discharged through uh, a rupture disc uh, because you've exceeded the pressure in that vessel. You know that's an unacceptable uh, outcome at a lot of these chemical facilities, specifically because of the hazards not just not just explosion and fire hazards like we think of in the combustible dust community but a lot of them have to do with toxicity or environmental hazards so you know there's some catching up to do when it comes to some of the industries that we're working with in combustible dust in terms of you know what's acceptable because you know you often find in these in these dust handling facilities where you've got you know, fugitive dust leaks because a a piece of ductwork is not, is maybe not fully enclosed or or there's a a leak being created through a valve. Um, You know, maybe you've got seals that, that aren't, aren't new, aren't fresh. And every time that we're pulsing a jet on a dust collector or, you know, you ever open up the bottom of a a silo skirt and you're just seeing piles of sugar dust there. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of these facilities are a little bit more worried uh, about food safety uh, than they would be with something like, uh, you know, combustible dust or, or the hazards involved there. So, you know, I think that taking some of these early warning signs a little bit more seriously within our within our you know our process industries that aren't necessarily the, the chemical or the petroleum processing, but those of us handling solids, understanding that if we've got a large amount of uh, fugitive dust that's building up on our process equipment—it's because there's something wrong. You know, if you've if you've got a process that's first installed, uh, you wouldn't accept it if somebody tried, you know, coming out for commissioning, and, and you see dust billowing out from a, an elbow because because it's not sealed up tight. You know, you'd say, no, 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 no. This is a new system. You got to get that fixed. But after it runs for a couple of years. It just becomes commonplace. And we get you know, that's how you end up with a situation, you know, like you mentioned in one of your previous podcasts with Imperial Sugar, where there was just you know, there's so much fugitive dust around that it compounds the problem and it makes it worse.
0: Yeah, I I appreciate you going through that because I didn't really prep you for that question, but it it was uh, the big the big word there is that I I hadn't I thought about a bit, but I hadn't thought about it this way is loss of containment. The processes that you just described are loss of containment of a elbow that's leaking dust, dust collectors that are not picking up dust. That is loss of containment of a fuel. If the if the dust is combustible, so get your dust tested, see if it's combustible. If it is combustible, that is loss of containment of a fuel. <laughs> it's it's uh, and if we started calling it, that, maybe we would you know be a little more aware about your standing in it or or whatever it is.
1: No, you you've got it, Chris. It, it wouldn't be acceptable. If you're at your car filling up uh, your tank and all of a sudden you just started leaking gasoline next to your car, you know, because if, you know, that, that provides a, a clear and present hazard to you. And it's something that's well recognized throughout society. And, and, and yet, you know, it, it's completely commonplace that, that I see uh, coal dust or wood pellets, you know, two fuels that we use for generating energy in the same way. And when they up, end up on the ground in, you know, in a very fine powdered form, they offer you know a hazard just in the same way as that gasoline would. But we just don't think of it that way.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, I think, kind of ending point. So I'll give a, I'll give a brief summary. We went through um, DustCon Solutions, just what you guys do, what you and your team do there um, with dust hazard analysis. I know you do a lot of training, a lot of speaking as well, um, a lot of education and awareness in that space of combustible dust. We talked about NFPA 69 covering prevention of deflagration hazards and control of deflagration hazards, pretty much the gambit except for venting, um, which is covered in NFPA 68. Uh, We talked about SIS, safety instrument systems, quite a bit, layers of protection, the SIL level, the safety integrity level uh, requirements for that. We talked about limiting oxygen concentration and minimal explosive concentration. And we gave a couple examples through, which I think the audience will will like and appreciate. If you have any thoughts on those specific examples or want to see more, definitely check out the show notes. I will also include the article that uh, that Tim wrote um, in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash twenty eight. Then we closed up a little bit about this. Uh, I'm just going to summarize this loss of containment of a fuel as being, you know, this fugitive dust issue, and how that might tie back to some you know chemical safety or process safety concepts that that maybe we're not quite getting out there or getting the awareness high enough in the combustible dust world so I, I think those are all great topics is there anything else that you wanted to uh kind of close up this episode on tim
1: um you know i i'd, I'd really like to kind of engage the audience and, and just try to see what we you know maybe i could pose a, a question to our listeners Please, yeah uh, you know, First of all, thank you for doing these podcasts and and for all the work that you're doing in discovering where the incidents are occurring, Chris. I think that the work you're doing is really valuable. But I'd like to see some success stories from our listeners. You know, I'd love to hear about uh, when it was that your explosion vent went off, it was directed to a safe area, and a disaster was averted. Because when it comes to combustible dust, a lot of times all we hear is... You know the negatives. You know these guys aren't doing it right, or, or they're putting their head in the sand. They're not. They're not aware of their hazards. But you know, I'd love to hear about companies who have gone forward, implemented these types of things, and they've seen success from it. You know they, they've seen that it was money well spent. And um, I think that would go a long way in in helping to maybe reshape some of the conversation we're having about it.
0: Yeah, I would, um, I would agree wholeheartedly. And some people that have heard me speak in the last little bit, I mentioned earlier on the podcast that uh, I'm working on a book chapter. It's pretty much finished now for a, a dust explosion kind of text that will come out hopefully in the next couple of months. Um, but my, my chapter was dust explosions, a serious concern. So I you know, wrote 40 pages of different incidents, open challenges we have as a community. And it was you know, one explosion, another explosion of fire. And it's all kind of bad news stories. So I, I second that it'd be nice to get some you know some good news stories in there and you can you can email me Chris at dustsafetyscience.com you can go to dustsafetyscience.com podcast. and there's a sign to be interviewed on the podcast there um, We can do it a couple ways like if people want to share their story and remain anonymous, we want to generalize the story so that there's no proprietary information um, or even you know what industry like any way that we can, we can provide information that somebody can go, oh, this actually helped." you know, my somebody in my industry would be a good, would be a good outcome of, of this show. And I think you're, you're spot on with wanting to have more good news stories. And we need, to, we need to figure out what those are and find the people that are willing to talk about them as well.
1: Yeah, I, I agree.
0: So, okay, with that, the only thing I want to mention is I know you do do training and speaking on combustible dust. Um, I think I've seen you speak before at a couple shows. Do you have any, anything coming up that's worthwhile that the audience might be interested in checking out? Well, it's all it's all worthwhile, I'm sure. But <laughs> do you have anything? Yeah.
1: So, uh, so, so DustCon, we have our um, you know our, our webinar series that airs every couple of months. Uh, we put out a new webinar on various topics uh, related to combustible dust, much like yours. Uh, the next one is scheduled for April twenty fourth. But I do record those. I put them online. I'm looking to build a YouTube channel that can be used as a resource for, uh, for those looking to learn about combustible dust. For those who want a little bit more formal training, Kansas State University will be doing a dust hazards course coming up in July. It's going to be the 23rd to the 26th. Um, I think that we can find a way to get Chris that information if, if listeners would like to sign up. And then also the Powder Bulk Engineering Conference. In New Jersey, coming up September 18th and 19th, I'll be doing two days worth of seminar sessions there. Uh, if you've enjoyed what I talked about today, I invite you to come and and learn a little bit. I think that it's going to be it's going to be a whole lot more detailed, and and we're going to have some good topics to cover.
0: Yeah, I think that's I would recommend checking that out. the The first one, the webinar, it will probably this will probably come out after that, so April 24th. But those recordings that will be available and we'll get a link we get a link to all three of those include them in the show notes we'll also include them in the events calendar dot com slash events if anybody wants to check out what's going on in the combustible dust world they can they can find that there so with that i just want to say thanks again tim i know this this ran a little bit longer maybe than we had thought but we covered too many good topics to, to stop
1: it i think <laughs> yeah hopefully hopefully the the viewers are still with us it might just be you and i at this point
0: No, we'll always have more of this. There's there's a, it's too good of a topic. So uh, no, I appreciate your time again. I look forward to the chance to get you back on the show in the future.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris.
0: Thanks, Tim. We'll, we'll talk soon. So I really enjoyed that discussion with Tim Henix on the new revision to NFPA 69, the new release and what has changed from the old release. And we even got into some different topics that we weren't really planning on discussing, like process safety in general, layers of prote- protection approaches to process safety, um, loss of containment, and whether or not we should be using that type of terminology more in combustible dust, whether or not we should be calling combustible dust fuel. We had some good examples and some really good discussion there. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. As Tim mentioned, we're really looking for some um, good news stories and success stories to share on the podcast as well. So if you think you have one of those, reach out to dustsafetyscience.com podcast. There's a form there where we can fill out to be an interviewee on the podcast. Um, We can do this in a couple different ways. As I mentioned in the episode, uh, we can kind of strip out and make the cases more general. We could, uh, you know, not actually disclose the companies that are involved. Just anything to try to get this information out there in a a positive light, successes that companies are having. As always, I appreciate you listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe week ahead, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing in industries handling combustible dust around the world.